morning, St. Barnabas. Our text for today is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We begin at verse 22. Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 22, and the Bible reads, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wives, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Is the reading of God's word. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed for that reading. Um, just a word uh, about the carol service next Sunday. Um, it is without question of doubt the earliest carol service anywhere in Africa. You won't find any of your friends going to another carol service next Sunday. The reason we hold it this early is because we want these students to be part of it before they go home. But it is a wonderful opportunity for you to invite um, friends, family members, who uh, ordinarily never darken the door of the local church. I think I'm right in saying that the church is the only institution in the world that exists for the benefit of the non-members. So please do think about who those non-members might be in your world and make sure they're here next Sunday morning. I'll be taking a detour out of Ephesians and we'll be considering the real Christmas message. But uh, for now, I do hope we have that marvellous passage open in front of us or on your phone, and um, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we have just sung these marvellous words. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. And so now as we study your word together, 
we ask you to hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Julie grew up thinking that uh, marriage was a bit like war. Uh, her father was a bully who would often speak unkindly to her mother. Uh, when anything went wrong, it was never his fault. And uh, if he couldn't blame it on his wife, he would blame it on the children. In the end, uh, Julie's mum gave up trying to express her own opinions and she retreated into her own private world. Julie promised herself she would never be like her mum. But when Julie went to stay with her uncle and aunt, things were completely different. Her aunt was a forceful career woman. She made all the decisions at home and simply told her husband about them later. And although Julie admired her aunt's spirit, she often felt sorry for her uncle. Sometimes she even despised him. He seemed to be such a, a passive, downtrodden, weak man. So when Julie became a Christian and got engaged to Tony, she came away from the marriage preparation class really confused. The evening had been all about headship and submission, but she simply couldn't make sense of it. She could see the words in the Bible, but she simply couldn't relate them to the dynamics of real life. Her own experience suggested that this model for marriage was just totally unrealistic. Julie is not a real person, but I guess that most non-Christians and actually many Christians today would sympathize with her for at least a couple of reasons. For a start, um, in recent years, the anti-Christian lobby has successfully persuaded most Western governments that the, the biblical picture of marriage is actually narrow-minded and out of date. Uh, they say that it's an expression of religious fundamentalism and it should be thrown out in favor of something that's more in keeping with the spirit of the age. Uh, that is the general tone of public opinion to speak against that requires real courage. Indeed, in some countries, it might even land you in jail. But the second reason why many people would sympathize with Julie is that Paul's teaching on marriage has frequently been abused. I guess most of us here this morning can think of shameful examples of men like Julie's father who've used this passage to justify cruelty and oppression in the home. Of course, that is a wicked misreading of God's word. But both those factors mean that when it comes to Christian marriage, we Christians need to know what we believe and why. Whatever the critics might say, our passage this morning is the right place to be because 
It is the most extensive teaching on marriage in the New Testament. Now, before we go any further, let me say that I do realize that for some of you, this is not an easy subject. Some of you are facing painful challenges in this area, and I do want to be extremely sensitive to that. But I also believe that when we understand what Paul is really talking about here, that there is massive comfort and encouragement for all of us. What then do Christians believe about Christian marriage? Uh, One of the puzzles that helped me to understand Paul's message here is the fact that Paul himself was not married. Uh, All the scholars agree that this is a crucial text on marriage, but the human author was always far too busy ever to find time for a wife. He was always planting churches or on mission trips or writing important letters. Now that's rather odd, isn't it? Because in every important area of life, when we need help, we want to speak to an expert. We want to listen to someone who can speak from personal experience. But where marriage is concerned, Paul can't do that. Of course, he's an apostle, so what he has to say about marriage comes with the full authority of Jesus Christ. But Paul's singleness, you see, very strongly suggests that if we are to understand his teaching on marriage correctly, we need to see it as part of a much bigger truth, part of the message, in fact, of the whole letter. And when we do that, we find that it gives us a vision for marriage that is far grander and far more inspiring than we ever realized before. Because in this text, Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel. More precisely, it's a picture of three great realities at the heart of the gospel. And it's my prayer this morning is that that as we see these things being brought to life in the relationship of marriage, we will find our own marriages are enriched and our faith is strengthened. So what then are these three gospel realities of which marriage is a picture? First, Christian marriage is a picture of gospel unity. It is a picture of of gospel unity. Please come with me to verse 31. Verse 31 reads, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now if you glance down to the bottom of the page in your Bible, you'll notice that in verse 31... Paul is actually quoting from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. In other words, he's reminding us that right at the very beginning of human history, marriage was God's idea. And any serious discussion about marriage has got to start there. But secondly, this verse is also teaching us 
that God's design for marriage is that the man and his wife become one flesh. There is to be a deep oneness between them. They are to become one person. That's actually what the word in the original means. What on earth do we make of that? Well, you'll remember that when God made the first man and the first woman, he made them in his image. Of course, we could have an entire series exploring what that means. But among other things, it means that God has made each one of us into a trinity just as he is trinity. In other words, just as God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and still just one God, in a similar way, each one of us is a trinity of body, soul, and spirit. And in a Christian marriage, in order for the man and his wife to become one flesh, there needs to be a oneness, a unity, on each of those three levels. And that has to happen if the marriage is going to reflect God's design and be a marriage that flourishes. So let's think about those three together for a moment. What does this unity look like in practice? Well, firstly, it means that in a Christian marriage, there will be a unity of body with body. In other words, there will be a faithful, sustained, self-giving sexual relationship. Now, no doubt there are going to be times when that may be difficult. But uh, the experts all agree that the quickest way for any marriage to get into difficulty is for either party to deprive the other of their sexual union. Equally, at the other extreme, if the marriage is based purely on sex and nothing else, well, it's going to be fatally unbalanced and very unlikely to last. Now, that, you see, is why there also needs to be a unity of soul with soul. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the soul? Well, we're talking about the intellectual and emotional side of our humanity. It's referring to what we do with our mind. And oneness of unity of soul means sharing some of the same interests, activities, and friendships. Let me say here that that is not going to happen naturally. Uh, Gillian and I have found over the years that we have to make time to do things together that we enjoy doing. We actually have to plan it or it won't happen. Thirdly, there must also be a unity of spirit with spirit. Now you see, this is what makes Christian marriage unique. Because this oneness of spirit requires that both husband and wife have separately trusted in Christ. And as a result, the Holy Spirit has come to live within each of them. Now that is the key to a successful marriage. Because it's only the people 
who have God's Holy Spirit living within them, who will actually want to embrace God's design for marriage for themselves. And it's only the people who've done that who will actually experience what the Bible means when it talks about marriage as a one-flesh relationship. Now, what is the point? What's the point? Why did God create marriage to be like this? Well, come with me to verse 32. In verse 32, Paul says, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, did you see what he just did? He gave us God's blueprint for marriage, and immediately Paul says, well, actually, I was talking about something else altogether. When he was talking about the one flesh relationship in marriage, he was actually talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. Why? Because the one is a picture of the other. Now, of course, that has been his main concern throughout the letter. Do you remember he began, didn't he, by describing God's plan to unite all things under Christ? Chapter 1, verse 10. And then he said that plan is being made visible in this present age, in the church. In other words, through the gospel, men and women are being reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, and brought into the church with Christ as the head. And Paul is saying in our passage that if you want a close-up of just how intimate and secure the relationship is between Christ and his people, the place to look is at a healthy Christian marriage. Now, at one level, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised about this. After all, uh, during his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus publicly identified himself as the bridegroom. You remember that? He performed his very first miracle at a wedding. And the book of Revelation tells us that at the end of human history, all of God's people will be his bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, the implications of all of that are massive. Let me mention two. First, there is great comfort here for Christians in difficult marriages. You see, Paul is saying here that our marriages on earth are really important. Yes, they are. But they're actually pointing to something even more wonderful. So whether we're in a good marriage or a bad marriage or not even married at all, every Christian will one day experience the ultimate marriage to Jesus. That's the reality. And it will be infinitely more wonderful than even the very best marriage here on earth. Second, if Christian marriages are a picture of gospel unity, well, it's no surprise, is it, if the devil is always trying to break them up? 
That's why immediately after this passage, Paul gives us his teaching on spiritual warfare. We're going to look at that together in a couple of weeks' time. But this morning, I think it's worth emphasizing that marriage is and always has been a target for the devil. That's why the divorce rate inside the confessing church is almost identical to the divorce rate outside the church. So it's with good reason that God gives us spiritual armor. Christian couples ignore it at their peril. So a Christian marriage is a picture of gospel unity. Secondly, a Christian marriage is a picture of gospel love. It's a picture of gospel love. Now, in the uh, original language, Paul addresses just 40 words to wives, but 115 words to husbands. In other words, he has nearly three times as much to say to husbands as he does to wives. And the reason is that the primary responsibility for their marriage lies with him. How do we get there? Well, come with me, please, to verse 23. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now, of course, the problem is here that as soon as you and I hear the word head, uh, we tend to think, don't we, of the head of the company or the head of the school and all kinds of ideas of authority and control come flooding into our minds. So we need to be very careful here because Bible words have Bible meanings. So in order to understand them correctly, we have to resist the temptation to import the way that we use words today into the text and look instead at the way Bible writers used them in the original context. Now here... Paul says that the pattern for the husband's headship in marriage is the headship of Christ over the church. And he describes the nature of that headship for us in verse 25. Let's all look down at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So can you see straight away that in a Christian marriage, headship is not about control. It's not about being the boss or taking all the decisions. It's actually about self-sacrificing love following the example of Christ. Or to put it another way, there is to be a visible likeness between the way that the husband loves his wife and the way that Christ loved the church. It might not be perfect, it won't be perfect, but other people ought to be able to see some similarity. What should, what should they see? Well, Paul singles out two things in particular. This is very striking. So if you've nodded off, come back to me now. Look down carefully. 
First, the Christian husband loves his wife by an active concern for her holiness. Now, outside the church, people will say that the you know, the wife's holiness comes a very long way down the list of priorities, uh, somewhere behind providing her with a nice home and some money for clothes and a decent lifestyle. But if we ask the question, what was the purpose of Christ's love for the church? Well, verse 26 is clear, isn't it? It was to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So, friends, at the very least, headship modelled on the headship of Christ means not spending money on luxuries. No, it means spending time on our knees. It means praying for our wives in detail. So in other words, it's not, it's not simply, you know, dear Lord, please bless Gillian, amen. It's not that. It's praying that your wife might grow in her love for Jesus. It's praying for perseverance in particular struggles she might be having with sin. It's praying for spiritual light to shine into any areas of doubt or unbelief she might have. It's praying for friendships that will encourage her in her walk with Christ and much, much more besides. But brothers, can I say to you this morning that if we are not showing an active concern for our wives' holiness, on the last day, God will want to know why. Secondly, the Christian husband loves his wife by providing for her physical and emotional needs. Verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. In other words, you could paraphrase verse 28 like this. You shall love your wife as yourself. Now, as soon as I say that, you can see that Paul is actually saying far more here than the, that the husband is simply responsible for providing food and shelter. Yes, those things are primarily the husband's responsibility. But you know perfectly well that our love for ourselves goes way beyond that. And just as you and I are constantly aware of our own emotional state, the worries and the pressures that come at us every single day, so we are to show the same sensitivity and concern towards our wives' emotions and whatever challenges she might be facing. And that, of course, means spending time with her, listening to her. So, brothers, headship in marriage isn't quite what we thought, is it? In uh, 1943, the German pastor and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer had been imprisoned by the Nazis for speaking out against the regime. Word reached him that one of his friends was going to get married, and he wanted him to preach the wedding sermon. 
So what Bonhoeffer did was he, he wrote out his sermon in his prison cell using Ephesians 5 as his text, and he sent it by mail to his friend. Listen to what he said about headship. It will appear on the screen. Now, when the husband is called head of the wife, and it goes on to say, as Christ is head of the church, something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. And this reflection we should recognize and honor. The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in any capacities or qualities of his own, but in the office conferred on him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in this dignity. But for him, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is the mainstay and comfort. He is the master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, comforts, and stands for it before God. So friends, a Christian marriage is a picture of gospel unity. It is a picture of gospel love. And thirdly, a Christian marriage is a picture of gospel submission. It is a picture of gospel submission. Because, of course, verse 22 brings us to the most difficult part, doesn't it? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, for decades, arguments have raged about what Paul means here and why it actually matters. So, on the one hand, there is the feminist interpretation. Uh, this was caricatured, wasn't it, rather amusingly, in that marvellous film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, if you saw it, you'll remember that the, before the ceremony, uh, the bride's mother was giving advice to her daughter. And uh, she said this, I won't attempt the Greek accent, you have to hear it in the original, it's hilarious. She said, um, man is head, woman is neck. And she turns the head any way she wants. <laughs> now, I don't know where they got that from, but I tell you what, it wasn't Ephesians 5. At the other extreme, some male chauvinists have taken verse 22 to mean that wives are to treat their husbands rather like the Lord Jesus. Well, clearly that's nonsense. You know that. So what on earth can we say to rescue the teaching of verses 22 to 24 from the lunatic fringe? We can make four statements. First, submission is a Christ-like virtue required of all Christian disciples, male as well as female. 
That was the message of verse 21 that we looked at last week, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, of course, we don't all submit to one another in the same way. But we saw last week, didn't we, that submission is a gateway to being filled with the Holy Spirit. So submission is a Christ-like virtue expected of all Christians. Second, Paul is not teaching inequality between men and women. Both sexes are equal. Both bear the image of God. Both are equally precious to him. Because as Paul says elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So our passage in Ephesians is about different roles rather than the different worth or value of men and women. Third, Paul is not teaching slavish obedience. Now it is true that the word submit in the original does mean something very close to obedience. But in the past, some people have taken the phrase in everything at the end of verse 24 uh, far too literally and way out of context. I mean, quite clearly, it's common sense, isn't it, that God does not expect a Christian wife to follow her husband into behavior that's going to grieve the Lord. Of course he doesn't. Christ is to be the ultimate authority in her life. And the Holy Spirit will show her what is right and wrong, and she must act accordingly. But fourth, what Paul is teaching is that the wife's submission and the, the husband's self-sacrificing love belong together. They are two sides of the same coin. And when they are, their marriage is a real-life portrait of the gospel drama, isn't it? In which the husband lays down his life for his wife's highest good and the wife willingly and joyfully submits to his loving care and protection. And if you think about it, it means, doesn't it, that a spirit-filled Christian marriage in which both partners submit to God's design for their own roles well, that kind of a marriage has extraordinary evangelistic power, doesn't it? Listen to the way that one minister teaches this in wedding services at his church. And again, this will appear on the screen. He says, when it is time for the vows, I call the couple to the seriousness of their commitment. They are not merely marrying one another. They are, in part, submitting themselves to the larger realities of life, to the survival of the Christian community. Their lives, their souls, their egos, bent and shaped by the pattern of Christ and his church, now listen to this, will mean Christ to their children, to their parents, 
and to the church his body, of which he is the saviour. Friends, can you begin to see just how significant Christian marriage really is? It isn't quite what we thought. But as we close, does this passage have anything to say to those who are not married yet, but might be thinking about it? Can I suggest two questions arising from the teaching here that you can use to help you make a wise and a godly decision when the time comes? Ladies first. Ladies, when you think that you have found the right person, the question you should ask yourself is this. Do I wish to have this man as my head? Would it bring me closer to Jesus for me to submit to him? Or would it actually take me further away? Men, the question that you should ask yourself is this. Do I love this woman with a genuine concern for her holiness? And would I do anything to care for her and protect her? Friends, I suggest that if you take the trouble to ask yourself those questions and give an honest answer, you'll actually save yourself and others a great deal of heartache. But even more important than that, you will be walking in step with God's design and purpose. And surely that's something that every spirit-filled Christian would want. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have invested Christian marriages with great dignity and significance. May we be a church that teaches and upholds your design for marriage, that prays for your protection over Christian marriages, and that shows great compassion to all those struggling in painful marriages. And we ask it for Christ's sake.